you'll join me this morning in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans, and this morning we will be in verses 9 through 12. If you want to follow along in the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 941, page 941. Title of our sermon this morning is Father Abraham, and our key words for our worshipers in training are Father, Sign, and Seal. Now, over this uh, past week, some of you may have seen a social media post of some of my friends, some members of our sister church in Savannah at Christ Center Reformed Baptist Church, and it went viral. Chris and Candace Smith, a very dear couple, faithful brother and sister who love the Lord, who, who love the church, and who are always seeking to put Christ first in their lives They have five wonderful children, a thriving business in Savannah. And the story is that when Chris and Candace were first married in 2007, he gave her a ring. And that ring became uncomfortable after she got pregnant, so she put it on a necklace and wore it around her neck. But after a while, for several years, she was without a wedding ring. And so she eventually went to Macy's and spent $20 to get a ring for her finger. And she wore that for for several years. Well, their business has done very well over the past few years, and so Chris was able to finally save up enough money and to buy Candace this big, beautiful, shiny, bright wedding set a few weeks ago. And so Candace posts on social media that she moved from this $20 ring to her new setup now, And this man in Jacksonville, Florida, that they don't know, saw this on social media and shared it on Facebook and said, true love will always outlast outlast proof love. And then things went crazy. This post has been shared over 64,000 times, has garnered over 8,500 comments. And wouldn't you believe it? On the internet, of all places, on the internet, some people have negative things to say about it. Now, Chris will tell you that his message box is being bombarded even now with hateful messages of people telling him that he is a deadbeat, that he is cheap, that he's trying to get something for nothing. If you go to the original post online, there's no shortage of people leaving all kinds of comments about what they think about all of this, the outrage. Some some are very encouraged and encouraging, some extremely hateful, but all of them have an opinion about what this ring is for. What is it? What should it be? What is it all about? Why should it matter so much? It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? Apart from the whole social media aspect of things and the baggage that comes with all of that, the idea that a story about a wedding ring could be made public, and so many people have such strong opinions about it, and then it goes, it goes viral and even ends up with Chris and Candace being interviewed on the Savannah News, and they got such a response there. They, they, they released an extended version of their interview on the news, and people were able to talk about their relationship. But Chris and Candace went on TV, and they talked about the relationship they have as a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church and their greatest desire to make known to the world that they love Christ, they love His church, they want to represent it all well, no matter what kind of jewelry they have. But what is it about a ring? 
Why does it matter? What is the point? Well, if you ever went to a wedding and the ceremony ended and there was no exchanging of rings, you would find that a bit odd, wouldn't you? Some of you might even think, if there's no rings, then there was a problem. Maybe something went wrong. Maybe they're not actually married properly. But that's not the case, is it? Of course, a ring isn't the thing that determines if a couple is married. It doesn't make the marriage more legal or more lasting or more binding. So what is the point? What does it do? Well, a wedding ring is a sign that someone is married, of course, and it acts as a seal between the couple. That's how we talk about it, right? It's, it's symbolic of the fact that vows were made, and it's a sort of a seal to solidify that this person has taken these vows, and this person is united to their spouse. So, of course, a man may love his wife with all his heart, He may promise to be with her as long as they both shall live through sickness and through health, but that doesn't require a sign, does it? But if you think it's not important, just ask 65,000 people on the internet. Just think of a woman who's, who's lost her wedding ring or her engagement ring or doesn't have one to wear at all. What's going to happen? Well, she's going to wear a $20 ring, and she's going to do it proudly because it's the sign and the seal of her marriage. It's not about the size of the ring. It's not about the cost of the ring that matters to someone who isn't worldly. It's nice. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the point, is it? The point is that there's something that can be identified about a specific kind of covenant that was made between two people, and it's there for the world to see. Now, as we come to our text this morning, you're going to recall that the Apostle Paul has brought up Abraham here at the beginning of chapter 4. Abraham, of course, is the forefather of the Jews, and in fact, the father of the Jews that Paul is addressing specifically in this text. And, And what we'll focus on this morning is that Abraham was the one in whose life God first introduced the sign of circumcision. Now, Paul's entire argument, and we've seen this, that he's, he's belabored, that maybe, maybe you're getting a little bit tired of hearing it over and over again. He's, he's been on this issue of justification by faith apart from works of the law. And so, Paul is going to continue to press in on this issue, and he continues to do so with multiple examples. If you'll recall back to last week, he, be, he began with Abraham, and then he brought in David in our text last week. He's, he's back on Abraham now to show us that indeed nobody was, nobody ever will be justified by circumcision. And so, like a wedding ring, circumcision served as a sign, it served as a seal, and yet... The Jews were looking at their circumcision as if it was the thing itself that saved them, which would be the same kind of faulty thinking that someone would have if they thought that the wedding ring was what made their marriage legitimate or real. And so so Paul has been writing about this blessing of justification. 
He's been writing about forgiveness and pardon and the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to God's people. And today, we look at Abraham as the father of the faithful and the sign and the seal that comes and what it means. So, if you're so moved by the Spirit along the way, feel free to hum quietly in your seat. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. You know the song. It's a top ten classic in the church. So, let's read together about Father Abraham and what the Lord tells us, beginning in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now look, I talk to all of you, and we discuss the Scriptures and the sermons, and I know that there are some of you thinking, Paul, why do we keep coming to this? Why does the same sort of theme keep coming up, this thing, this truth about God's righteousness in Christ being credited to people by faith alone, by God's grace alone, apart from works of the law. We saw it in chapter 3 and verse 22 and verse 28. We saw the story of Abraham last week in verses 1 through 5, the illustration of David in verses 6 through 8. Paul, we get it. We understand. Why do we keep going back to this? Why are we back at Abraham and justification by faith alone again? Well, I think it's fair to say that Paul is very well versed in the Scriptures, very much able to identify the objections and the questions that will arise as a result of his teaching among the Jews, his preaching of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He was one of them. And he once had their same objections and was now able to anticipate all of their questions. And so he knows that they're going to say to him, Paul, what about our forefather Abraham? What did he do? He is the one who brought his son Isaac to the altar to be sacrificed. Therefore, he was justified. And Paul just sort of settles in to responding to that argument at the beginning of the chapter. And he says, remember last week, well, let's look back at Genesis 15, 6. And it was crystal clear there, right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so what does he do? He anticipates 
now that they're going to say, but Paul, if this is true, what you say, you are laying waste to our religion because you are saying that the privileges that are ours as a result of our circumcision, all those privileges are meaningless. And so, Paul, you're saying that circumcision doesn't even matter. And if you're saying that, you're destroying the religion that, of Abraham who received circumcision, and you're destroying the religion of all of Abraham's descendants. And Paul, that's all of us. Paul, that's you. And so, Paul masterfully keeps steering them in the right direction, and he says, well, hold on a minute. Let's go back and look at Abraham just a little bit more. I want you to notice that circumcision wasn't the thing that really made the difference before God. And so the first thing we see in verses 9 and 10 is that God counts His children righteous apart from works of the law. We see this again. And we can say, yes, we, we get it, but it's central to the gospel. And we, we often don't really believe this or see this, and so it's important that we, that we stay focused here. And so in verses 9 and 10, Paul shows us that Abraham received righteousness. It was granted to him apart from the work of circumcision. Notice the question he anticipated. Is this blessing only for the circumcised? And so masterfully in verse 10, Paul says, well, this should be an easy thing for all of you to answer if you know the Scriptures. All of you who are Jews should know this. You know that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we read that in Genesis 15, 6. So let me ask you, when was Abraham circumcised? And the only thing the Jews can say is it was later. It was after. And if they had the chapters and verses like we do, they didn't. But if they did, they would say that was in chapter 17, but he was counted as righteous in chapter 15. And so Paul is sort of setting up this kind of mic drop moment that he has with them. He has their backs against the wall, and he's saying to them, listen, friends, Abraham was justified as an uncircumcised man, so you really don't understand faith, and you obviously don't understand the point of circumcision either. So what is his point ultimately? His point is that our justification is not as a result of our ability to do any good works. Our justification is not as a result of our religious observances. Our justification is not a result of our use of the means of grace. No, Abraham was justified, and then Abraham was circumcised. So the circumcision of Abraham was the sign of what had already happened. It is the Lord putting the wedding ring on the finger. He justified Abraham, and so now he can wear the sign. It wasn't anything Abraham did. It wasn't that God looked at what Abraham did that he was now finding favor before the Lord. God made a covenant with him. God justified him. And it was the simple way 
in which he's trusting God's Word to be true, trusting the promises to be faithful, that God would send His Son as the seed of Abraham to be the Savior of the world, to be the Savior of Abraham Himself. The greatest of all the Puritans, John Owen, he wrote, one of the most important things in the world for a Christian believer is not to try to build into the grounds of his or her acceptance with God anything that believer does after they become Christians. In other words, what Owen is saying is, God saves you, and so after God saves you, don't think, don't act, don't pretend like anything you do after your justification counts toward your justification. If we are justified exclusively by grace on the grounds of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and that becomes, and that comes to us at the moment that we trust in Jesus Christ, we can't then back up what we do in the future and then build that into the foundation of our acceptance before God and say, before I was justified and accepted by faith alone. But now, the reason that I am accepted by God is whatever we want to fill in the blank. And you can fill in the blank because we all do that all the time in our own thinking. There's always a reason in our minds. There's always a justification in our minds that I am a little more acceptable to God than other Christians because of what I think and how I believe and how I live out my Christian life. Or the opposite of that. Perhaps you're a little bit down on yourself and you think, I am way less acceptable to God than other Christians. So we all sort of have these reasons, and we we make those excuses for ourselves, and we so often forget that we cannot add to, we cannot take away from our justification. It is not possible that you will be more justified or that you will be less justified from the moment that you truly become a Christian. It's not possible. It's not like God saves us and assigns all of us a number on a scale of justification. And what we do or don't do sort of moves the needle on that scale. Maybe you have to to, to work a little harder to do better if you're really going to do anything worthy of a high level of justification versus a low level of justification. No, it doesn't work that way. Listen, if you are justified, You have been justified with the same level of justification as you will have in a billion years of eternity. And to that justification, we add absolutely nothing. And that should give us great joy. That should give us great assurance. But we are so prone to think, well, maybe I can just add a little to my justification over here. So I can be sure that I'm justified. I want to be sure that I have my salvation, so I just want to add a little bit over here. And again, you might be thinking, yes, I realize that, but here's the absolute truth. By nature, as human beings living in the flesh, the most difficult thing for any sinner to believe is that he or she could be justified, not by paying for their own sins, not by being punished for their sins, 
but exclusively, exclusively on the grounds of God's saving goodness and mercy and kindness and love for His children who embrace Him by faith alone. And so because of our unbelief, we end up exerting ourselves in so many ways, trying to get something to, to help build the foundation of our justification so we can feel more stable, so we can feel more secure. Yes, I have God's promise of justification, but I need more. Yes, I have the perfect law-fulfilling life of Jesus. I have the, the sinner's death of Jesus in my place. I have the resurrection of the Son of God who was raised from the dead to conquer sin and death for me. But I need more. I need more. I have the assurance that if my faith is in Christ, who, who assured me by the blood of the cross that I am forever a child of God, I have that, but, but I need more. We, we really just can't believe it consistently, can we? That's what's so amazing about the gospel is that it's so unbelievable, and yet it is the very thing that we're called to believe. We really can't just be assured by God in His promises that we are justified, we are right before Him on account of the work of the Son of God, period. Now, if you're anything like the Jews, which all of us sort of are, some of what I'm saying might make you a little bit uncomfortable because maybe you're thinking, yes, but if all of this is true, then it means that people can just live however they want. They can live their lives and, and do whatever they want without any fear of what God will do. Now, this was the objection that Paul received frequently. So, I think I'm in good company here if someone hears me and thinks that. People were constantly addressing Paul and saying, Paul, if you tell people that they are justified by grace through faith apart from works of the law, and it's nothing other than trusting in the work and the life of Jesus Christ alone, and if you tell people that all their years of faithful Christian service add nothing to their justification whatsoever, people are just going to go live however they want. Don't you care about that? And so all the claims of antinomianism, all the claims of lawlessness will come flooding in. And you say, Pastor, we need to preach the law of God. We must preach the law. God requires something of His people. And I say yes and amen. I do not disagree with that comment. We must preach the law. But you cannot confuse justification with sanctification. The order in which we understand those two things happening in the life of the believer is crucial. And if you get it wrong, it's deadly. So my friend, if that's what you believe, if that's what you conclude from today's text, that we're just giving Christians free license to live however they want, then it's really not the gospel that you're believing. It's some kind of self-help or some kind of God helps those who help themselves sort of false gospel that you believe. Now look, today, maybe you come here and today is the greatest Lord's Day you've ever had, a Lord's Day like no other for you. You come and you prepared yourself for worship today. Every song we've sang, you, you've sang while being completely unaware of yourself, completely focused on the Lord Jesus. 
all of our praying has been meaningful to you and you've fully agreed with all of it. The reading of the text has given you greater insight into God and His work. And your experience has been that you have more faith and more love for the Lord as we've read. The preaching of the Word is giving you a, a greater desire to understand just how glorious our salvation is in light of who we are. When we have our Lord's Supper, it can be, it can be the sweetest, most meaningful time of communing with, with the Lord Jesus and with His people that you've ever had in all of your life. But you know what? You can have the greatest Lord's Day you ever imagined and far greater but at the end of it all, you will not be one single solitary bit more justified when it's all said and done than, when you, were, than you were last night. And you know what? That's a really, really, really good thing because we don't have to live in bondage to our actions and our feelings and our experiences. A right understanding of our justification keeps us from thinking that we have this relationship with the Lord that is, He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. So do you know what that means? It means that you're free to live your life as a Christian unbounded from the tyranny of trying to keep it all in place, perfectly tidy, because you assume that's why God loves you and that's what God is asking of you. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about licentiousness. I'm not talking about antinomianism. I'm not talking about lawlessness. But this is recognizing, as Paul has shown us extensively now, that I cannot earn, I cannot gain my own or for myself, anything of the love of God before Him. It is all of Him. It is all of Him. And I come before Him as a justified sinner, as someone who will mess up, who will continue to sin in this life, and who will be loved and justified regardless today to the same extent that I was loved and justified the day the Lord saved me, to the same extent that the Lord will keep me justified and will continue to love me in a million years of glory. And what does that do to us? What does that do for us? Well, instead of living in bondage to any attempts to earn or to keep our justification, it frees us to live our lives so that with a heart of love for our Lord and a desire to walk in obedience for His glory, we now look to His law as something that we desire, something we long for, something we want to walk in accordingly. So you see, the person who truly understands their justification and who is truly justified will walk in obedience, but our motivation is astronomically different. I'm not doing this to keep something that I have to keep myself. I'm doing this because I love the Lord and I'm thankful for the Lord and I know that what the Lord commands is best for me to bring glory to Him and to bring peace and joy and gladness in Christ in my own life. So then, what other objections could be raised to all of this? Well, Paul anticipates another one in verse 11. Is Paul saying that circumcision was of no value whatsoever? 
And he shows us in our second point this morning that our righteous standing before God comes with a sign and a seal. Now, when the Jews were looking to circumcision, what were they doing? They were making the same mistake as all the people I mentioned to you on Facebook. They thought the ring was what really mattered instead of the relationship that that ring represented. They were mistaking the ring for the marriage itself. In the same way, they were confusing circumcision with faith. Circumcision was never given as the basis of justification. It was a sign. It was a a physical, visible sign. It was a seal of God's granting justification on the basis of Christ's righteousness. You see that right there in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, if Abraham was circumcised after his faith was counted to him as righteousness, his circumcision couldn't have counted for anything in terms of his justification. Abraham's justification had nothing to do with his circumcision, which was a sign and a seal of the saving righteousness that God gave to him and that was received by faith. So let's be clear about this. Abraham was justified by God's grace through faith that was granted to him as a gift, and it was all apart from works of the law. And so he then received the sign and seal of having been justified, which God determined would be the mark of circumcision on his body. And so the sign is circumcision, and the seal... What is a seal? Well, think of it this way. Every, every now and then I'll be, I'll be asked to uh, write a letter of recommendation for someone maybe going to school or for a job or something like that, and whatever the institution is might ask that when I send it off, that I sign my name on the seal of the envelope so that when they receive it, they can determine that it wasn't opened or altered in any way before it arrived to them. So, The idea being that the person who's requesting that couldn't have received my letter, opened it, written a new one, put it in there, and resealed it, right? And so that seal is an authentic uh, authentication. It's a seal that is, is confirming that what is inside is the real thing. And so circumcision is the physical sign that a covenant has been made, and it is a seal, it is a confirmation that justification has already been granted. Now notice, this isn't just Paul creating some new formula. This isn't Paul sort of coming to the conclusion that he drew on his own about the the meaning and the value of circumcision. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 11, the Lord said to Abraham, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. You see, that, this, is, this is just Paul pointing the Jews back to the text that they assumed they already knew so well. This is Paul saying, I'm not telling you all of these things myself. I'm not making this up. I'm simply telling you what our Scriptures have already said. You're the one in error here, not me. 
This is how God works out the covenant relationships with His people. We always see a sign and a seal, don't we? Remember, remember the Noahic covenant? What, what did God do in the Noahic covenant? He made a covenant with Noah, and really that was a covenant with all of humanity, and that covenant was that He would never destroy the entire earth by flood again. And then what did He do? He put the rainbow in the sky. And what was that all about? It was a sign, and it was a seal. It was a visible indication that would be a reminder that God made a covenant promise and that He will keep His promise and that we can trust His promise. And so the purpose is to draw out our faith. The purpose is to remind us when we see the rainbow that God is who He says He is, that God will do what He says He will do, that God has done what He said He would do. And so every time we see a rainbow in the sky, we can faithfully rejoice and say, God is remembering His promise to us. In the same way that the Jewish males were able to see their circumcision and remember that God promised to justify and preserve those who believed just like Abraham. And so we need to be clear about this. God's covenant did not require signs and seals because God's Word is faithful and true. He didn't have to give signs and seals. He said He would fulfill His covenant obligations, and since God is truth and cannot lie, we know that it is as good as done. But God did it anyway. God gave us signs and seals so that we could remember, so that we could be reassured, so that we could have our faith drawn out and strengthened as we journey through this life. And we can say that same thing about the covenant signs and seals. We can say that about the ordinances of the church. We can say that about baptism. We can say that about the Lord's Supper. These are signs, these are seals, and I might add, that is why these things, why the means of grace are so important for Christians. Some people, <coughs> some Christians assume that they have legitimate reasons to look, uh, excuse me, to not look at the ordinances as something they need or as something they, they should or even must take because they assume that they aren't worthy. Or maybe they think they're too sinful. But do you know, those are the moments when we have those thoughts in our mind. Those are the moments when we especially need the signs and seals. Especially when we need to be reminded of our baptism. That the old man has passed away and behold, the new has come. It's in those times when we feel most unworthy that we especially need to remember the life and death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. We ought not to keep ourselves from the signs and seals that announce God's promise of justification and righteousness. No, brothers and sisters, we must take of them as often as we can so that we could be reminded afresh that we are in covenant with a God who will never leave us or forsake us. And so if you have a bad week or a bad month or a bad year, you can be reminded that the Lord has not 
wavered in his commitment to his people of whom you are amongst. John Calvin wrote about our coming to the Lord's Supper table each week as a time of renewal, a time when the covenant promises as our, as our bond as Christian brothers and sisters with the Lord is renewed with us once again, that we would be reminded of God's promise, that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our faith to continue to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the, one of the mistakes we often make as Christians is that we take something like the Lord's Supper, and we tend to look at ourselves instead of looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we tend to make it this sort of very pietistic, sort of a holy ritual that is, is far more about us and this sort of soul-searching, almost soul-crushing, excruciating examination of our hearts to where we really have to feel really, really, really bad about our sin before we could ever come to the table or we're just not, we're just not doing it right. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. But that's not it, is it? That's not what this is all about. The table is about coming and being reminded of God's promise, being reminded of Jesus' work. And it keeps us from having to assume that we just aren't good enough, we're not doing enough, we're not repenting enough, we're not flagellating ourselves enough, whatever it comes down to. The table is actually intended for exactly the opposite. Namely, to get us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ in whom all of our righteousness can be found. When we come to the table, it's with this understanding. Instead of a somber death march down the aisle where we sort of acknowledge our sinfulness and our brokenness, no, instead, the table is, is used to, to draw out our admiration, to draw out our trust, to draw out our faith and greater obedience to the Lord Jesus. You will continue to have a much greater understanding of the grace of God in the gospel because of the Lord's Supper as a visible, physical sign of the gospel. The gospel doesn't say, turn in and look at yourself. No, the gospel says, Turn out and look to Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ and not on yourself because faith is all about looking to Jesus Christ alone and not to yourself. And so in the same way, we can remember something like our, our baptism or we can witness the baptism of another and, and remember God's promise of God's covenant. We can rejoice in the sign and the seal of that covenant and say with, with Martin Luther who said, I am a baptized man. Or you could say, I am a baptized woman. And, and so today may be a lousy day for me spiritually, but I have the sign and I have the seal of God's covenant promise for me. I have a weekly opportunity to come and to renew that covenant in my heart before the Lord at the Lord's Supper as I continue to look to Christ. And so just as we look at our finger and see our wedding ring to remind us of the vows we took on our wedding day, even if today is a bad day for marriage, we remember, I made a promise and that promise is to be kept. And all the more, we can look to the signs and seals of God's promises and say, He has never fallen back on His promises. They are everlasting. He will see them through to the end. 
Doesn't that just increase our faith, brothers and sisters? Doesn't that lift us from a place of of self-focus and self-pity and self-loathing and self-righteousness? And it brings us to a place instead of looking to Christ, rejoicing in Christ, delighting in Christ, being built up in our faith in Christ. We cannot fall into the tragic, deathly pit of looking at the sign instead of looking at the Lord. That's why Paul ends this passage this morning. Very simply, our final point in verse 12, Paul shows us that God grants righteousness to all who will come to Him by faith in Christ. Look at verse 12 again. He says, And to make Him the Father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Maybe how Paul writes this is a little bit confusing, but it is quite simple what he's saying. What Paul is saying is this. Look, the Jews have the sign of circumcision as a reminder of God's covenant promise. The Gentiles do not have that sign. So like Abraham... The Gentiles can be justified without the sign of circumcision. And the Jews can look at their circumcision and be reminded that they are in the family of Abraham, whose righteousness was counted to him prior to his circumcision. In other words, Paul is sort of telling the Romans, which most likely would have been a group of Christians who were both Jews and Gentiles, he was saying to them, look around the room. The people around you may not be from your tribe or your lineage They may be circumcised or they may not, but if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you share in the same exact salvation and you share in the same exact faith as Father Abraham. So the Jew can say, Abraham is my father. And the Gentile can say, Abraham is my father. And we can all say together, Abraham is my father. You see, this is Paul emphasizing what he so powerfully goes on to write about in the book of Galatians, namely that the gospel destroys every wall of hostility. The gospel brings down this division. The gospel lays waste to any notion that any of us would have any superiority over any other Christian because of anything, anything, what we look like, where we come from, what church we're a member of, what office we hold within that church, or how good our theology is. The gospel brings down every single barrier and we walk in the footsteps of faith behind our father Abraham before he was circumcised. Is Abraham your father? Do you walk in his footsteps of faith? Have you embraced the Lord Jesus Christ and looked to him that you might live? The call on the life from God of everyone is to look to Jesus Christ, to look to the perfect law-fulfilling life of Jesus who lived to fulfill the law that you and I could never fulfill, to look to Jesus who died on the cross on our behalf, taking upon Himself the death that was due to us because of our sinfulness, because of our rebellion, because of our lawlessness. The call is to look to the resurrection of Christ who conquered, who defeated sin and death, was raised from the dead to live and dwell forever as the King of all kings, to look to Him that we might 
live. Have you looked to Christ to live? Do you walk in the footsteps of Abraham? Our gospel is amazing. And so, brothers and sisters, when we come to the table this morning, instead of looking to yourself and thinking of yourself, because in yourself there is no hope or progress or resource. Now, instead, look to the bread and see the body of Christ being broken for you. Look to the poured out wine and see the Savior's dying love for you to cleanse you of your filthy unrighteousness. He is perfect, and He will see that we have every hope, and He will fulfill all of His promises. And so that's what we delight in. Do you remember, some of you know the story of Charles Spurgeon and how he was converted? <clears throat> remember one winter night, Charles Spurgeon was a teenager, and he was walking down the street, and he sort of dipped into a small little church there was hardly anyone there. The man in the pulpit was filling in for the pastor who was sick and was not there that night. And he, he wasn't a good preacher at all, and he was struggling with his sermon. He didn't really know what to say. But Spurgeon came, and he sat down, and the man pointed at Spurgeon, and he said, young man, you're looking miserable. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And the man sort of stood there, as Spurgeon recalls, and he stared at him a little bit longer, and he didn't have anything else to say, and he said, and look to Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters and friends, look to Jesus and live. That was the greatest advice that that preacher could have given to that young teenage boy. Look to Jesus. And we can live as a man or a woman who can faithfully say with all of our brothers and sisters, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So what should we do? Let's all praise the Lord. Amen.